<clears throat> this is day three of this January 2023 seven-day Rohatsu Seshin. And we're going to read again today from the book Everything Arises, Everything Falls Away, uh, Teachings on Impermanence and the End of Suffering from Ajahn Chah. Yesterday, when we uh, finished up, uh, we read uh, this passage. When lay supporters come to make offerings here, they recite, in the end, may we finally reach nirvana in a future time. <clears throat> I guess that's just some standard chant uh, that they use in, in that tradition. When or where that is, they don't really know. It's so very far away. They don't say here and now. They say sometime in the future. It's always somewhere, sometime there, not here, only there. In the next life, it will also be there. And in future lives, it will be there. So they never arrive because it's always there. <clears throat> he goes on and says, it's, it's like people inviting an old monk to receive alms food in a village and saying, please, venerable sir, Go for alms in the village over there. Then when he has walked to a distant village, they say, Please, venerable one, receive your arms over there, your alms over there. He keeps on walking, but wherever he arrives, they tell him, Please receive your alms food over there. The poor old fellow will never see a morsel of food. He just keeps on walking there and over there, and nothing becomes of it. <clears throat> we tend to be like this. We never say here and now. Why not? Is there something wrong with the present? It's because we are still involved with things. <clears throat> because we're still caught up in the drama of getting what we want avoiding what we hate. Such a radically different move to just settle into this moment. Put down the burden <clears throat> for just a bit. Takes us a long time to do this, to learn this. Sometimes we stumble into it, but then we fall back out and we don't know our way back. Have to keep learning again and again. He says, we still delight in the worldly and don't dare to give it up. So we prefer to let it be sometime in the future. a story about St. Augustine, <clears throat> the famous Catholic saint. Um, as a young man, he was, let's just say he was sexually active. And uh, <clears throat> he prayed to God, dear God, please make me chaste. But not yet. 
<clears throat> we prefer to let it be sometime in the future. Just like someone egging on the old monk with talk of a meal offering. Please, sir, travel over there for your alms. So he goes in search of the place over there where he can find food to sustain himself, but it's never here, and he never receives any food. Let's talk about here and now, in the present. Practice really can be done in the present. We don't need to look to some time in the future. <clears throat> it's amazing we even have to say that, isn't it? Practice can be done right here in the present. We can relax into the present. We can notice that tension we have to get over there where our food is going to be. It says, rather than becoming anxious about anything, we just look at the here and now Dharma and see uncertainty and impermanence. See, everything in motion, nothing is static. Everything is flowing. <clears throat> We want everything to stop moving. We want to get into whatever state it is. It's going to be the right one, and then we want to lock it down and stay there. The mind is constantly changing. The body is constantly changing. He says... <clears throat> when we look at the here and now Dharma, the Buddha mind, the one who knows, comes to be. It is developed through this knowledge that all things are impermanent. We could say through non-clinging, non-abiding, through mu. Ajahn Chah says, this is where knowledge is gained. Samadhi, the collectedness of the mind, can be developed here. There is the peace of living in the forest. There is calm when the eye doesn't see and the ear doesn't hear. The mind is pacified of seeing and hearing, but it is not pacified of the defilements. The defilements are still there, but at that time they aren't appearing. It's like water with sediment in it, when it's still, it's clear, but when something stirs, the dirt rises up and clouds it. You are the same in your practice. When you see forms, hear sounds, have disagreeable experiences, or have bodily sensations that are unpleasant, then you are disturbed. <clears throat> if these don't occur, you are comfortable. You are comfortable with the defilements. is the limitation of samadhi. It's a temporary condition. The promise of that deep absorption is that we may see. Things can turn upside down. The world of self and things <clears throat> can disappear. opposition of liking and disliking. 
He says the samadhi that comes from living in a peaceful environment is like that. There is happiness in being pleased by the tranquil state, but the happiness only goes so far because the mind is under the influence of desire for something that is changeable. Desire for peace, tranquility. After a while it will be gone and the unhappiness will take its place. Just as when a thief gets the camera you've been wanting and finally got. This is the peace of samadhi, the temporary peace of tranquility meditation. We have to look into this a little more deeply. Whatever we have will become a source of suffering when we lose it if we aren't aware of its impermanence. If we are aware of it, then we can make use of things without being burdened by them. If we're not attached, nothing wrong with good food, pleasant conditions. In our attachment, we forget that everything is changeable. The Buddha taught to look in the present and see the impermanence of body and mind, of all phenomena, as they appear and cease without grasping at any of it. If we can do this, we will experience peace. This peace comes because of letting go. Letting go comes about because of wisdom, the wisdom that comes from contemplation of impermanence, suffering, and not self. Again, the three aspects of reality. The truth of experiencing and witnessing this truth in one's own mind. Practicing is like this. We are continuously seeing clearly within our own minds. That is noticing, noticing our thoughts and feelings. When we notice them, we don't get hijacked by them. It says, phenomena arise and cease. Ceasing, there is new arising. Arising, there is ceasing. If we form attachment to what occurs, suffering comes about right there. If we are letting go, suffering will not come about. We see this in our own minds. <clears throat> suffering that we, that we experience is a, is a message. It's a little alarm. One teacher called it a compassionate alarm clock that tells you you're living in the dream. Instead of running away from it, look into it. Instead of feeling this is wrong, learn what you can. Everything is workable. He says, we can gain real certainty about the Dharma when meditating like this, and we can come to the point where all we have to do is be looking at our minds in the present. 
We let go of the past and the future and look in the present. And we see the three characteristics continuously and in everything. Walking, there is impermanence. Standing, there is impermanence. Sitting, there is impermanence. <clears throat> everything is in flow. Nothing is fixed. We are open and responsive. It says that's the inherent truth in things. If you are looking for certainty and permanence, you can only find it in the fact that things are this way and not changing into some other way. When your view matures like this, you will be at peace. <clears throat> or do you think that by going to meditate on a lonely mountaintop, you'll have peace? You may have peace for a while, but when the austerity of living there catches up with you, you'll start to feel hungry and exhausted. So you come down the mountain and head for town. Lots of good food and comforts there. But then you'll begin to think it's disturbing to your practice. Better go somewhere remote. Really, someone who suffers when living alone is foolish. Someone who suffers when living with others is foolish. It's like chicken turds. If you carry them around by yourself, you stink. If you keep them when you're among others, they also stink. You carry the rotten things with you. <clears throat> you could say the calls are coming from inside the house. <clears throat> if we are astute, then we may be living around a lot of people and feel it isn't a peaceful environment, and that will be correct to some extent, but still it can be a cause for gaining wisdom. I developed some wisdom from having a lot of disciples. Lay people came in large numbers, many monks wanting to be disciples, and everyone had their own views and dispositions. I experienced a lot of different things, and I had to rise to the occasion. My capacity for patience and endurance was strengthened. To the extent that I could bear it, I was able to keep practicing. Then all my experience became meaningful. But if we don't understand correctly, there is no resolution. Living alone will be good until we get fed up with it. Then we think it's better to live in a group. Having simple food will seem good, and then maybe having a lot of food will seem to be the right way. It goes on like this when we can't resolve our minds once and for all. Seeing that everything is unreliable, we will take all situations of lack or plenty as uncertain and not have attachment to them. We pay attention to the present moment, wherever this body happens to be dwelling. Then staying will be okay. Traveling will be okay. Everything will be okay because we are focused on the practice of recognizing the way things really are. <clears throat> People say, Ajahn Chah only talks about not certain. They get fed up with hearing this, and they run away from me. We went to hear Ajahn Chah teach, but all he talked about was not certain. They can't bear to hear the same old thing anymore, so they leave. I guess they're going to look for some place where things will be certain, <clears throat> but they'll come back. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> throat> 
is hard. This practice is hard. Recognizing the truth is hard. But as Dogen said, this sustained exertion is not something the people of the world naturally love or desire, yet it is the last refuge of all. Finding our way back to now, to here. Dropping the dream. It's not easy. But it's worthwhile. Moving on to another chapter entitled, A Perplexed Meditator Meets the Buddha. He tells a story here. There was a venerable elder in the time of the Buddha. He was a serious meditator. He wanted to get to the bottom of things, and so he went to practice samadhi in seclusion. Sometimes his meditation was peaceful, and sometimes it wasn't. He couldn't make it stable. Sometimes he was lazy, and sometimes he felt diligent. So he started to have some doubts, and he thought he needed to hear more about the path of practice. He would hear of different teachers. Such and such master is really good. His practice and teachings are excellent. His fame is spread far and wide. And he would seek out that teacher to learn his way of practice. Then after studying for a while, he would go back to practice on his own again. Then, practicing what he had learned from that teacher, he found that some things agreed with his own ideas, and some didn't, and his doubts would keep on coming. He would hear someone praising another teacher, and so he went to see that one. He would learn from that teacher and then end up comparing it with what he had learned from the previous one. He kept on learning and comparing, and the teachings didn't agree, and further, they didn't agree with his own ideas, so his doubts increased even more. Then there were the methods of practicing samadhi, He thought about them all and tried them all, and it only made his mind scattered and disturbed. It didn't bring his mind to concentration. He was getting to the point of exhaustion and was still as full of doubts as ever. One day, he heard about the monk Gotama, that's the Buddha, that he was indeed someone special. He couldn't resist. Off he went yet once again. Arriving at the place where the Buddha was staying, he listened to the teaching of the Dharma. Gotama said, trying to gain understanding from another's words will not bring an end to doubt. The more one listens, the more one doubts. The more one listens, the more confused one becomes. Of course, we're speaking of doubt, not in terms of the doubt sensation, not in terms of uh, wondering deep wondering about the nature of things, but confusion, uncertainty about what to do, how to practice. The Lord Buddha said, doubt is not something that another person can resolve for us. Another person can only explain about doubt. It is for us to apply to our own experience 
and come to direct knowledge ourselves. <clears throat> the Buddha taught, within this body are form, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, and consciousness. <clears throat> These are the five skandhas, make up body and mind. These are already our teachers, giving us knowledge, but it requires proper meditation and investigation. If you want to make an end of doubt, then you should stop and investigate this body and mind. Talking about direct experience, not ideas, not slogans, not pictures, <clears throat> thing itself. The Buddha says, discard the past. Whatever good one has done, whatever evil one has done, discard them. There is no benefit in holding on to them now. Whatever was good has passed. Whatever was wrong has passed. The future has not yet come. Whatever will be will arise and pass away in the future. When it does, you should recognize it and discard it without grasping. Whatever occurred in the past has vanished. Why will you expend yourself thinking about it now? In the present, you need not be involved with it. You need not try to stop any thoughts or recognition, but having thought of and recognized the past, you are aware of this and let it go because it is something that is already finished. The future has not yet come. Knowing thoughts of the future as they arise and pass away, let them go. Thoughts of the past are impermanent. The future is uncertain. Knowing them, let them go. Look at the present right now. Look at the here and now dharma of your present experience. Do not think that this or that teacher will resolve your doubts for you. All the teacher can do is encourage you to do the experiment. Everyone has to learn for themselves. Everyone has to stop and turn the mind in. It's hard for us to do. <clears throat> That's why Sashin is so helpful. Turning the mind back. <clears throat> we give ourselves to the process. Not trying to make anything. Feel anything special. Just trying to see what's there. Strip everything else away. Only move. Only this. Only the breath. He says, the Buddha did not praise those who believe others. One who relies on the words of others and is elated or depressed thereby is not praised by the Buddha. Understanding what someone says, one should let go because those words are another's and should not be attached to. Even if they are correct, they are correct for that person. If we don't internalize them and make them correct in our own hearts, they never really become correct for us and the doubts will not cease. 
<clears throat> is it correct? Is that teacher right? Is this teacher wrong? This means we haven't practiced to realize the true meaning, so we are not yet praised by the Buddha. I am always teaching about this aspect of the Dharma that calls for turning inward to see, to know, and to realize for yourself. If someone says something is right, don't yet believe him. If he says something is wrong, don't yet believe him. Right and wrong are merely words spoken by some other person. Whatever teaching you hear, internalize it and practice to realize the truth of it here and now. The same practice will not be the same for different individuals because of their differing degrees of wisdom. Even beyond that, we could say because of their different characteristics. Just everyone is different. Works for one person doesn't work for another. We go to see meditation teachers and try to understand their way. We look at their methods and their conduct, but this is looking at externals. What we can see of their practice is just the external part. If this is how we approach it, then our doubts will always remain. Why does this teacher practice in this way? Why does that teacher use that method? Why does one teach a lot, while another teaches very little, and another doesn't teach at all? This can really confuse you. Finding the right way doesn't depend on these things. It's up to each individual to follow the correct path. We can take others as good examples, but we have to look deeper within ourselves in order to eradicate the doubts. Thus, the Buddha taught, the Buddha taught that elder, <clears throat> that elder in the story, to contemplate the present moment, not letting his mind go off towards past or future. says the wheel of samsara, the round of existence, spins. But it's not necessary to try to follow after it. It goes around in a circle. Do you want to try to keep up with it? It's really fast. If a wheel is spinning, you can stay in one place and let it spin around. A lizard might try to run after it. You can stay put and see the lizard come around again and again without having to chase it. It's fast the cycle of the worldly dramas, dharmas, dharmas and dramas. But for a person who has wisdom, there is no problem. If one is mindful, then in all different situations, coming and going, taking care of whatever affairs one has to, there is no harm to the mind. going to move on uh, to another section of the book. This is part three. We're leaving impermanence behind. (laughs) And now we've got dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. So this is chapter 16, understanding dukkha. Dukkha sticks on the skin and goes into the flesh. From the flesh, it gets into the bones. 
It's like an insect on a tree that eats through the bark into the wood and then into the core until finally the tree dies. As we grow up, it gets buried deep inside. Our parents teach us grasping and attachment, giving meaning to things, believing firmly that we exist as a self-entity and that things belong to us. From our birth, that's what we're taught. We hear this over and over again, and it penetrates our hearts and stays there as our habitual feeling. Not only our parents, uh, everyone, all of society, our peers, brothers and sisters and friends. Everyone lives this way. Remember my, at that time, granddaughter, Isabel, suddenly standing up at the table and pointing to her mom and dad and saying, Mommy, Daddy, then pointing to herself and saying, Izzy, I remember thinking, this can't be good. <laughs> but we have, to, we have to get that down. That's, that's the beginning. <clears throat> we have to differentiate in order to live in this world. Then we've got some cleaning up to do. He says... When we take an interest in meditation and hear the teaching of a spiritual guide, it's not easy to understand. It doesn't really grab us. We're taught not to see and do things the old way, but when we hear this, it doesn't penetrate our hearts. So we sit and listen to teachings, but it's often just sound entering the ears. It doesn't get inside and affect us. It's like we're boxing. We keep hitting the other guy, but he doesn't go down. We remain stuck in our self-view. The wise have said that moving a mountain from one place to another is easier than moving the conceit of self-view, this solid feeling that we really exist as some special individual. That solid feeling is a barrier, barrier to getting deep into our practice. Ramana Maharshi, the Indian sage, said, you need not have any attitude in the mind. All that is required is you must give up the attitude that you are the body of such and such a name and so on. There is no need to have an attitude about your real nature. It exists as it always does. It is real and no attitude. Ajahn Chah says, we can use explosives to level a mountain and then move the earth, but the tight grasping of self-conceit, oh man, our wrong ideas and bad tendencies remain so solid and unbudging and we're not aware of them. one of the fruits of practice is becoming aware of those wrong ideas and bad tendencies. People think it's bad news when those things come and hit them in the face, but it's necessary. It's a start. He says, the wise have said that removing this view 
and turning wrong understanding into right understanding is about the hardest thing to do. For us who are worldly beings, to progress on to being virtuous beings, these are two poly terms which I'm not going to bother with, to progress on to being virtuous beings is not easy. A worldly being is one who is thickly obscured, who is dark, who is stuck deep in this darkness and obscuration. A virtuous being has made things lighter. We teach people to lighten, but they don't want to do that because they don't understand their situation, their condition of obscuration, so they keep on drifting in their confused state. If we come across a pile of buffalo dung, <laughs> he's got something about <clears throat> clearly. He's an earthy guy. If we come across a pile of buffalo dung, we won't think it's ours and we won't want to pick it up. We'll just leave it where it is because we know what it is. Such is what's good in the way of the impure. That which is evil is the food of bad people. If you teach them about doing good, they're not interested, but prefer to stay as they are because they don't see the harm in it. Without seeing the harm, there's no way things can be rectified. If you recognize it, then you think, oh, my whole pile of dung doesn't have the value of a small piece of gold, and you will want the gold instead. You won't want the dung anymore. If you don't recognize this, you remain the owner of a pile of dung. <clears throat> but it is so hard to let go of it. Remember the phrase in the Dhammapada when the Buddha says, <clears throat> quotes the person saying, he robbed me, he abused me, he beat me. To those who think in this way, suffering will not cease. We feel that our resentments are justified. Feel that things should be different. Reality should be different. <clears throat> I fought the law and the law won. <clears throat> That's the so-called good of the impure. Gold, jewels, and diamonds are considered something good in the realm of humans. The foul and rotten are good for flies and other insects. If you gather fresh flowers, the flies won't be interested in them. Even if you tried to pay them, they wouldn't come. But wherever there's a dead animal, wherever there's something rotten, that's where they'll go. Wrong view is like that. It delights in that kind of thing. What's sweet-smelling to a bee is not sweet to a fly. <clears throat> of course with us even when we don't like it we're attracted to it we can't drop the things we dislike we wallow in pain because we're habituated to it don't know any other way a lot of addiction is no longer fun but not doing it seems harder. He says, there is difficulty in practice, but in anything we undertake, 
we have to pass through difficulty to reach ease. In Dharma practice, we begin with the truth of dukkha, the pervasive unsatisfactoriness of existence. But as soon as we experience this, we lose heart. We don't want to look at it. Dukkha is really the truth, but we want to get around it somehow. It's similar to the way we don't like to look at old people, but prefer to look at the young and attractive. I think it's one of the fruits of practice that we begin to see the beauty in every face. It's something I remember Roshi Kaplow mentioning way back in the 60s. Came back from Japan. Spoke of the beauty of an angry face. Everything is so fascinating and interesting when we're not turned away by our likes and dislikes. We can drop our agenda. Things open up and reveal themselves. Find everyone has their own kind of beauty. He says, if we don't want to look at dukkha, we will never understand dukkha, no matter how long we live. Dukkha is truth. If we allow ourselves to face it, then we will start to seek a way out of it. If we're trying to go somewhere and the road is blocked, we will think about how to make a pathway. Working at it day after day, we can get through. When we encounter problems, we develop wisdom like this. Without seeing dukkha, we don't really look into and resolve our problems. We just bear with them or pass them by indifferently. My way of training people involves some suffering because understanding suffering is the Buddha's path to enlightenment. He wanted us to see suffering and see its origination, its sensation, its cessation, and the path that brings about cessation. This is the way out for all the awakened ones. If you don't go this way, there is no way out. Opposing our habits creates some suffering. But generally we are afraid of suffering. And if something will make us suffer, we don't want to do it. We're interested in what appears to be good and beautiful, and we feel that anything involving suffering is bad. But it's not like that. If there is suffering in the heart, it becomes the cause that makes you think about escaping. It leads you to contemplate. You will be intent on investigating to find out what is really going on, trying to see causes and their results. To put it in uh, AA, Alcoholics Anonymous terms, it's like a drunk's bottom. When things get bad enough, we realize we have to do something different. And we're ready. We're ready to drop our old views, ready to be humbled. We need to suffer in order to drop our pride, stop competing, trying to stand out above others. We have to suffer enough. For some people, it doesn't take much. I remember in AA hearing the story of a woman who had 
been wrapping presents under the Christmas tree, and she uh, woke up the next morning realizing she had fallen asleep there, and she was so shocked that she joined AA and never drank again. Most drunks have a more spectacular bottom, but it varies quite a bit, quite a bit. In a way, though, the person who hits bottom, the person who sees their suffering, understands that the way they're approaching life isn't working. That person is fortunate because the people who manage to skate by, manage to continue to hold on to self-view, to preen, to criticize others, but everything is going okay to them by their assessment anyway, those people will never change. Sometimes we have to be miserable before we can turn around. How miserable is different for everybody. <clears throat> it's one of the, uh, the virtues of Sashin <laughs> is that it makes us miserable. <laughs> Then we find a way, find a way, and Sashin becomes the most wonderful thing. Doesn't stop being miserable, <laughs> but it still becomes something wonderful. <clears throat> We're in the third day, still in the more miserable portion of Sashin for most people, but things are beginning to brighten a bit. People are beginning to become more settled, begin to understand, yes, we can do this work. So much possibility. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.